0: And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14, and that's up on the screen um, as well as in the Bible you may have in front of you. Job chapter 40 from verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said to him, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and obeys him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. All right, well, good afternoon. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the
1: leaders here, and um, thanks for joining us this afternoon, whether this is your first time or you're here with us week in and week out. This is our third week out of four looking at the book of Job, which is 40-odd chapters diving into this story of a guy called Job and how he wrestles with suffering and his understanding of who God is. And uh, and we come to what is um, really the, the peak of the book. Um, this is probably... Look, the book in many ways is subtle and poetic, and there are some difficult passages, but this is, this is one bit that's, that's really crystal clear, and it's right at the center of things. And what we're going to hear from this is that the answer to all of Job's wrestlings and wanderings with suffering is that we are called to fear God and to trust Him. And I think that's a particularly different, a difficult call given our cultural context. Let me explain why. I, a few months ago, I read an article called Alexa and the Age of Casual Rudeness. Now, Alexa is like one of those dot devices at home that's either, they all did them at once. So it's either, which one is it? It's Apple or Amazon or Amazon. Okay, great. So that's Alexa. And the, uh, the author was talking about the fact that his, his kid is growing up with this kind of technology, just a part of his world. But his concern is that when he was, he's kind of got a background in IT. And he's saying when he was growing up and he was kind of learning to code and all this kind of basic stuff, he said when you issued commands to a computer program, you had to type them, but now you audibly say them. And he's saying his concern for his son is that he's going to grow up in a world where he issues commands like a God and has things carry through his will and obey them. And he quotes a guy called Elias Kennedy concerning his concerns about this. He says, um, (laughs) concerning his concerns, anyway, but um, he says this, the power of those who give commands appears to grow all the time. Every command, however trivial, adds something to it, not only because in practice it generally benefits the person who gives it, but because by the very nature of commands, their knife-edge precision and the recognition they exact in the whole sphere they traverse, it tends in every way to augment and secure his power. He's saying when you issue a command, even if it's to just a, a, a piece of technology and your will is carried out, it makes you feel powerful, even if you're not consciously thinking that way. And he's saying his concern in raising his child in this this, uh, environment is that he's going to grow up issuing commands like a God and subtly build into his worldview that he himself is some kind of all-powerful being. He doesn't put it that dramatically, but he says, Look, my wife and I have expended much time and energy ensuring that when Ari, their son, speaks, he does so respectfully and intelligently. But he can speak to Alexa without any consideration at all. Please or thank you are never involved. In fact, polite words would just get in the way. And it's interesting thinking what subtle effect technology has on your soul as you issue commands and as they're obeyed. And this is just one area. I think about our kids. When I was growing up, we had something called tapes. And if you wanted to listen to a song... The first thing was you had to hope that the right tape was in the car. But even if that was in the car, that was no guarantee that you were going to be able to find it. If you wanted to listen to the song that you were hoping for and your heart was set on, it involved several minutes of putting it in, fast-forwarding, flipping, going out, realizing you should have rewound when you fast-forwarded, and then eventually you find your song. But it kind of built into you that just because you want something to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. But now for our kids, they can be like, I want to listen to this song and we can make it happen. And there's technology all around them that is subtly building into them this idea that if I want something, not only can I have it, but I probably should have it. Now, why is this a problem? If you live in a city, which you do, and you spend your life telling Alexa and Siri what to do, you watch what you want and order what you want, you order food and clothing to your house at any hour, it subtly builds into you the quiet belief that you are master of your domain that you are in charge of your surroundings, that you are the greatest being in your life, and perhaps even the universe. There is very little in modern life to remind us that we are standing and building cities on the frozen surface of a fireball, and that that fireball is just a speck of dust floating through a vast and unsympathetic universe. One author puts it this way. He says, There is nothing to remind you of the truth, that you are a decaying accumulation of atoms, We will have the trapdoor of death open beneath you before our planet even has the chance to destroy itself by global warming or is plunged into another ice age by a meteoric catastrophe or is destroyed by an expanding ball of fire that will consume the solar system before collapsing back in on itself. That's a happy thought for a Sunday afternoon. But I don't know if you get the idea. There's very little in modern life to remind us that we aren't powerful, that we are in fact in a very vulnerable position. And I think, I think this is what makes suffering so difficult in Western cultures like ours. That's not that suffering is ever easy anywhere across the world. One of the things about suffering is its universal nature. It respects neither class nor distinction, does it? Suffering is difficult no matter what. But I think one of the cultural elements that makes it particularly hard in the West is that we spend our lives building up this view that I'm fully in control of my life and my surroundings. And when suffering comes, it tears down the curtain in the most dramatic way. And this is why I think it's the case that one of the the key objections to the existence of God in Western cultures is that God would be sovereign over a world where there is suffering. And yet where the gospel is exploding and expanding are in cultures that are the most impoverished in the world, where objectively the most suffering is happening and where suffering is most acute. In countries where living conditions are the best, is where the doubt that God exists because of suffering is the most significant. Now, don't hear me wrong on this point. I don't mean to trivialize suffering based on geography, but there is something to this, that I think it's the case that our culture puts us on the wrong foot to deal with suffering when it comes along. That the way things are set up in a man-made city is that we are fully and completely in control of every outcome, and then suffering comes and completely tears down that worldview. And that's why I think that what this passage has to say today can be a particularly difficult pill to swallow. Because in this passage, God is going to say to Job that the answer to suffering is, fear God and trust Him. And we have a worldview that is built on the fact that there is nothing great beyond us, that we, in fact, are the greatest thing that is around and that things should bow down and obey our will rather than we should recognize and fear a greater being than ourselves. So I'm going to pray that as we look at this, that God would be doing a work in our hearts and that we would see clearly who he is from this passage in, uh, in Job 40. Let's pray. Father God, you are great beyond measure. That you hold the universe in your hands, that you are the all-creating one. That You have no beginning and no end. And we don't know anything of what that is like. We pray that as we look at your word, that we wouldn't hear these as the mere words of a person. But know that these are the very words of God. And that we would see your wisdom and your greatness in them. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, to get you up to speed with where we're up to in this book of Job, it starts with a wager between God and Satan. Now again, if you wanted to track back through the series, they're on the podcast. I won't be dealing with everything that we've done over those couple of sermons. But it starts with this wager where Satan says, look, Job doesn't fear you. you give, he's rich and he's got lots of stuff and he accredits that to God. So that's why he loves you, God. Then Job loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his possessions. He even loses his health and well-being. And he still says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He holds fast. He fears God and trusts him. But then as the suffering wears on, Job starts to wear down and starts to despair, and he has three very unhelpful friends come along and give him terrible life advice. They basically come to him in his misery and his suffering, and they say to him, Job, don't you know how the world works? God's in charge of everything. He makes sure that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Bad things are happening to you, so you must have done something bad. And he argues with them back and forth for 30 chapters almost, saying, no, that's not true. God is sovereign over the universe, but we live in a world where bad things can happen to good people and wicked people can get away with stuff. And eventually we see that his friend's worldview is too weak to make it through suffering and eventually they just run out of things to say. And Job holds fast to what he knows is true about God. And over time, he moves from despair to a faint hope that his Redeemer Will finally vindicate him. And so we pick up the story at the end of that. Job is about to summarize everything he has just argued through with his friends. And in chapter 31, he finishes by protesting his innocence. He cries out and says, Look, I've never I've never lusted or committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife. I've not I've cared for the poor. I've not loved or rejoiced in money. He says he has opened his house to the sojourner, he's not rejoiced when bad things happen to other people. And then he finishes all of it in Job thirty one, thirty-five. He says this to sum up his whole argument. It'll come up on the screen for you. He says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job's position here is three points. He says, Look, I'm innocent. I'm not suffering because I've done something wrong or some extraordinary sin. He says, God is, is treating me like an enemy, even though we are not enemies, and I don't know why. And he finishes on the third point by saying, and and God needs to answer me. Why is this happening? If I'm innocent and God's treating me like an enemy, why is this going on? I need God to answer me. And then out of nowhere, a guy called Elihu shows up. Now we're told earlier that these three friends came. They're terrible friends. They have terrible things to say and eventually they run out of stuff to say. And then suddenly Elihu just shows up because apparently in ancient Near Eastern stories, you can just do that. So that's fine. So Elihu shows up. And his name means God is he, um, but it's unclear w- w- what, that, what that adds to it. But what does seem significant about what Elihu has to say is that it's different to what these three friends have been saying the whole way through. And, and for a couple of key reasons. The first one is Elihu rebukes these three friends who've been speaking. So he clearly does not agree with them. Their worldview that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, he rejects that completely. He's like, no, that's not the way the world works. That's not the world that God is sovereign over. But then he also rebukes Job. So he's just got heat for everyone. He's just slapping everybody as he shows up. He rebukes Job, but interestingly, Job never pushes back on it. So it seems like Job accepts what Elihu is saying. Unlike the other friends, every time they made a bad argument and it was bad theology, Job pushed back on it. Elihu, what he has to say here, seems to be right because Job never pushes back on it. And lastly, to maybe confirm that, when God shows up, he rebukes the three friends out of hand and he doesn't rebuke Elihu. So what he says here is a different argument to what these three friends have been saying and it seems to be right because Job and God affirm it. They don't reject it. And Elihu replies to Job's kind of finale. When Job finishes by saying, I'm innocent, God's counting me as an enemy and God needs to answer me. Elihu answers these three things in order. And he starts in Job 33 by saying this. He says to him, it'll come up on the screen, Job 33, 9 to 12. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion with me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. He says to Job you're innocent, but you're not that innocent. Job is innocent in the sense that he has not done anything to bring this suffering upon himself. God is not punishing him for some extraordinary sin that he has done, that he's kind of clamping down on. But he says, but don't forget, Job, you're not absolutely innocent. He says, there is no one who has walked this earth who has done no wrong. He says, while you are innocent in the sense that this has not brought some suffering upon you, he's saying, look, don't forget that those who follow God and trust in God are at the same time righteous and yet sinners. See, what God does is he takes sinners and forgives them. And he's saying to Job, you are a righteous sinner. Look, you are innocent in regards to this suffering has not come upon you because of some great sin that you have committed. But just remember that you are not entirely innocent. God has been merciful to you. And so that's the first point that he takes objection to. He says, remember, you are a righteous sinner. But the second one is this. Job says, well, I'm suffering right now. God is treating me like an enemy. God has set his his weapons against me. That's what's happening here. And he says, Job, in this, you are not right. Look at what he says in, in 33, 12 to 18. He says to him, I will answer you. God is... Have I picked it up at the right spot? Yeah, just missed that first little bit of the sentence. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of a night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside a man from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword. Elihu is saying, look, the followers of God are righteous sinners. God has forgiven you and counted you righteous. He has been merciful towards you. But there is still sin that needs dealing with. And he says here, one of God's purposes in, in allowing his people to suffer is to keep them away from pride that leads to destruction. You may have heard that proverb, that pride, pride comes before a fall. And it's from Proverbs sixteen eighteen. 18. Where God says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Here Elihu is saying, look, God's purpose in allowing this suffering to happen to you, Job, is not punishment, but he does use it to humble his people. There is nothing that humbles quite like suffering, is there? If you have ever sat with someone who has suffered immensely, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes one of the things that will strike you about them is their humility. Humility. There is something about someone who has seen the depths of difficulty and suffering in this world that makes them a very humble and clear spirit. And Elihu is saying, enmity with God is not the only way to understand suffering. God uses it to sanctify his people and to keep them away from pride that leads to a fall. But the third one he says is this. Job made the point, the two points so far, that I'm innocent, that God is treating me like an enemy. Elihu says, you're not that innocent. And God's not treating you like an enemy. But the third one is Job says, and I need God to give me an answer for why it is that I've suffered. And Elihu finishes in 37 by saying that, look, God speaks through his creation. Now, what does that mean? There is a clear theology through the Old Testament that God demonstrates his greatness by his creation. In Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. What, What does this mean? It means when you consider the vastness of the world that we live in, if there is a God who has created it all, by logic, he must be greater than the thing that he has made. And so there is something about creation that should remind you that, gosh, God is far beyond my comprehension. And Elihu makes this point. He says, Job, God doesn't need to answer you specifically. His answer is this, that he is a great God and that he is worth trusting. In Job 37, 23 to 24, Elihu says this, The Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is great in power and justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear Him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. He says, God is huge and good, and we fear Him. We are in awe of Him because of this. And God does not regard those who are wise in their own estimation. And so to sum up, this is Elihu's point. Job says, I'm innocent. Elihu says, you're not that innocent. Job says, God is treating me like an enemy. uh, Elihu says, that's not his only purpose in allowing you to go through suffering. And thirdly, Job says, I need an answer. And Elihu says, well, God's answer is just that he's big. Now you think with this, how can Job be corrected if he was right? Didn't I labor the point last week that as Job was arguing with his friends, that the thing was that he was right in his understanding of God? In fact, at the end of the book of Job, God is going to say himself that Job spoke of me what was right. So if Job was right, how is it that he could be corrected? Well, I think Elijah's point is this, that yeah, Job is right, that God is not retributive. That he is not just, that his way of, use, of doing things in the world is not just when you do bad things, he's going to step up and punish you one for one. He says Job is correct about what God is not doing in suffering. But Job is not correct about what God is doing in suffering, if that makes sense. Job contended with his friends from the previous week saying, no, no, it's not the case that God is punishing me because I've done some great act of wickedness or sin. And that was clear. But Job isn't clear on what God's purposes in suffering really are. And that's where Elihu steps in to explain to him what it's about. And even as you hear that, you can almost feel yourself wanting to step in on Job's behalf and object when all of a sudden, God shows up on the scene and addresses Job directly. Look at what he says to him in 38.3. God arrives as a whirlwind, that says here, and he says to him, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Job made the case at the end of his speech. He said, I, I want an answer from God. And the irony is, here at the peak of the book, he's going to meet God and God is not going to give him an answer. He's going to give him 77 unanswered questions. 77 because the Hebrews love the number 7. But he's just going to him with 77 questions in a row and they're all rhetorical. And so God says to him, gird up your loins like a man, almost prepare for battle. He says, I'm going to ask you 77 questions. See if you can answer them. And he starts with this. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Consider the vastness of the universe, he says to Job. Just think of all that has been made. He says, where were you when that happened? And the answer, of course, is Job was nowhere. And so God moves on. He moves on then to the ocean, something a bit more tangible that he can see. He says to him in 38, 8 to 11, well, who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst forth from the womb? A trillion million kiloliters of water sustaining life and the largest animal on the planet able to break an oil tanker in two. He says, Job, are you able to shut the doors on the sea? Are you able to set its limits? And then he goes on to ask him about light. He says, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? He's like, did you create light, Job, traveling 300,000 kilometers a second? Able to travel from the sun to earth in eight minutes? Job, are you able to do that? Then he asks him about the rain. In Job 38, he says, Well, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land where no man is, on the desert where there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? He says to Job, You know, I can lift kilotons of water into the air without you even noticing it and suspend it over your head. And instead of breaking it upon you in a, in a deadly torrent, it comes down entirely, drops so it will give life rather than take it away. He says, Job, can you do that? Then he goes further out and he says, Think about star formations. He says, The Pleiades, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or the cords of the Orion? I mean, think about the expanse of what he's talking about. This is an image of the Pleiades. But even consider a a star that's closer to us, the sun. I mean, look at the proportion of the sun to the rest of the solar system. Able to consume 100 Earths, or even more so, 150 million kilometers away from Earth, so as to bring life rather than to destroy it. And this is just one star out of the billions in our galaxy, out of the billions of galaxies of, of how, many, how many more there are beyond that. And he says to Job, Job, can you bind the Pleiades? Can you set star formations in their place? And then he goes on to what I love. He asks about animals. And he says, who provides for the raven and its prey when its young ones cry out to God and, and wonder for lack of food? And then in 39, you get what is probably the first joke in the book where he says, Job, can you make an ostrich? And his point seems to be, I make, I make animals just for jokes and you haven't even seen the platypus yet. Can you do that? He just hits him with question after question after question. Of course, the answer to every single one because they're rhetorical is no. And after going through 77 questions in a row all without response. In Job 42, Job finally speaks, or speaks for the second time, sorry, in this, and he says this, in Job 42, one to six, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. After getting 77 questions that he knows he cannot answer, Job finally relents and says, "God, I, I spoke of things too wonderful for me. I went too far." And then he says at the bottom there, "I repent in dust and ashes." And and commentators are kind of are not quite sure what to do with this. The word there uh, can be used for repent, which means there is something that you've done wrong, that you are turning back from. And that would probably be the strongest rendering of the word. That would mean that Job has then done something wrong. So whether it's that he's said wrong things of God or done something specifically wrong that he is repenting of. A softer translation of it would be to relent. And someone suggested what Job is saying here is he hasn't done something wrong, But he he wanted to bring his case before God, and he's now retracting that case. He said to God, look, uh, you need to answer me and give me a clear answer as to why it is that I'm suffering. And now having got these 77 questions, he's like, you know what? Forget it. (laughs) The case is off the cards. I I get what's going on. The third one is this word can also mean in the passive sense to be comforted. And so that would then be, therefore, I despise myself and, and I'm comforted in dust and ashes. That is to know what he knows about God. Uh, having reflected on the greatness and wonder of God, he simply says, That is enough for me to know that there is a God in charge of the universe. I am comforted by that. So, which is it? I'm going to be a little bit postmodern here and say, Maybe it's all three. And you can, you can wisdom literature is a bit more poetic. And so, maybe God, through his Holy Spirit, chose this author to choose a word that had that range of meaning. But couldn't it be the case that? that when you are confronted with the very glory of God, that it can undo a soul three ways. That it can lead you to repent, to relent, and to be comforted all at once. Whenever anyone encounters God in the Scriptures, and notice that no one has ever seen God face to face, except through Jesus encased in flesh, Whenever whenever God reveals Himself in a significant way, the response is that people just fall on their face. When Moses only sees part of God's glory pass by him, he has to hide behind a rock for safety. When Isaiah, in a vision, sees God, he says, woe to me, I'm undone. I'm a sinful person from a sinful people. I'm undone to stand before this God. When Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured and he reveals his glory, they are so overcome that it says they become sleepy. They start to lose consciousness because they are there before a holy God. When John sees God in a vision at the end of, in the book of Revelation, it says he falls on his face as one dead. Whenever people encounter God in the Scriptures, as he reveals his holiness and his glory, even partially, the response is to be overcome by it. I remember seeing a, doc, a doco years ago uh, where one woman kind of talking about meeting God in the final days, spoke in that very irreverent Australian way and kind of said, well, you know what, when I, when I meet God, I've got a couple of questions for the big guy as well. And I've got to be honest, I think there was a time when I thought that at the end of days, because this is the promise of Scripture, that God will come to dwell with His people, I thought what would happen would be all the questions I've ever had would be answered. I think the book of Job is saying that that's not going to happen that what's going to happen is when we see God face to face, we'll be so overcome and overawed that we will ask Him no questions. We'll fall on our face and worship. That it won't be the case that we'll stand there pinging Him with questions or more than that, accusations. That we'll be overwhelmed. That we will see finally who He is and just be overawed by it. C.S. Lewis in his book, That Hideous Strength, tries to put some language around what it might be like to encounter God. And he does it in the book by having characters meet what is basically the God character. And he describes the experience like this. See if it it helps you to kind of wrap your mind around it. He says this as one of the characters meets God. It says, Quick agitation seized them, a kind of boiling and bubbling in the mind and heart which shook their bodies also. It went into a rhythm of such fierce speed that they feared their sanity might be shaken into a thousand fragments. And then it seemed that this had actually happened. But it did not matter. For all the fragments, needle-pointed desires, brisk merriments, lynx-eyed thoughts went rolling to and fro like glittering drops and reunited themselves. And now it came. It was fiery, sharp, bright, and ruthless, ready to kill, ready to die, outspeeding light. Not as mortals imagine it, not even as it has been humanized for them since the incarnation of the Word, but the translunary virtue fallen upon them direct from the third heaven unmitigated they were blinded scorched they thought it would burn their bones they could not bear that it should continue they could not bear that it should cease this is his attempt to describe what it might be like to encounter God in his fullness on that final day it's not a moment when the first thing that will occur to you is i'm going to hit this guy with a lot of questions none of us will And even for what you've experienced, on the last day, no one will stand there and say, God, I've got a few questions for you to answer. We'll stand there and be overawed. The description in the book of Revelation is that those around the throne are not standing there asking more questions. They're standing in awe of the Lamb saying, worthy and worshipping. The answer of the book of Job to suffering is, fear God and trust Him. And to fear God in Scripture, remember, is not fear in terms of sheer terror, it's kind of fear mixed with excitement. Think about it more like when you're standing on like one of those, those glass surfaces that are like 40 stories up, you have that sense at the same time of fear, but also excitement. Because in one sense, you feel like gravity should be pulling you toward the ground, and yet you're, you're there, you're surviving, you're, you're standing. I think that's a helpful description of what fear in the Scriptures means. It's to stand before God and think I should be destroyed and yet he has had mercy on me and I'm here standing and I'm alive. The answer in Job to suffering is not that we are finally going to get an answer to every question that we have. But when we see God in his fullness, it will be enough to say, I fear you and I trust you. Now at this point, I realize that may sound like an unsatisfying answer to a very serious question. But I want you to think about it like this. Think about the complexity of this world and universe. Think about the physical complexity of this world and universe. And then think about how morally complex this universe is. It struck me this week, I was listening to a, a podcast. So the Daily, which is a podcast connected to the New York Times, has been running a series called Caliphate. And it's been tracking sort of the movements of ISIS and where things are up to. But as part of the series, they, they managed to interv- interview a... Um, a Canadian citizen who had gone, joined ISIS, fought for them, even killed, then defected and returned to life in Canada. And uh, for the sake of the podcast, his name is Abu Husseifa. but the the fact that they've been able to interview him and that he is a free citizen in Canada has caused some controversy. And they were talking about, at the end of the podcast, they are talking about some of the difficulties, um, particularly with the law, around what to do with returned soldiers when they don't have enough evidence to convict them, and yet at the same time, they're very sure that they've done some terrible things, even crimes against humanity, and are not sure how, how it is that they're to deal with them. And one of the things the, the journalist, Rukmini Kalamachi, was saying, it's difficult because there's no easy answer. He says if you send them to prison, what tends to happen is they get more radicalized and they come back into society better equipped to commit crimes and more radicalized than when they went in. But at the same time, to have someone freely roaming in society who has gone and done terrible things is also not very comforting. And they talked about all the different ways that lawmakers are trying to keep up with what to do here. And it struck me as I was listening to this and reflecting on Job, that I was like, wow, this is one single issue happening on this planet right now. Think of all the difficult moral situations that are going on all over the planet right now. Think about the fact that God has to be sovereign over a universe where there is a deadly thing called sin that in any human heart would lead us even to kill the Son of God Himself. And we've seen that in Scripture. And at the same time, He's a God who longs to have mercy and compassion. And at the same time, He's a God who is sovereign over a universe that is so big that we don't even know how big it is. The truth is, if God were to explain to us what He is doing in any and every circumstance, we wouldn't have the mind to understand it. At some point, finding peace in suffering means saying, God, I fear you and I trust you. You are great beyond measure and you are the only one who has the authority to rule over this universe. Job, in the end, is saying the answer is that God is great and we're called to trust him. And so I think this means a couple of things in applying it. The first one is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, it means you need to get yourself a vision of the glory of God that is Job-sized, that is this big. The modern trend is to think that God is valuable because of how He makes me feel, that what makes God valuable is that He makes me feel a certain way, and that that in the end is why He is worth worshipping. But that's not how Scripture approaches it. You kind of think about it like this: years ago, maybe it was even last year, at the end of a bachelorette series, somewhere near the end, I can't can't work out if it was either the final episode or it's somewhere very close to the end. There's only two contestants left, and I think it's the pattern of the series that somewhere near the end, the the uh, the bachelorette or the bachelor will go to. (laughs) I I had this again this morning. I keep reaching for the word victims. It's not the the (laughs) contestants will go to the contestants' houses. And, uh, and meet their families, and their families will just hit them with a whole bunch of questions. Uh, and the first question that seemed to come across both times was, uh, why do you love my son? So they were asking the bachelorette, why, why do you love him? And it was interesting hearing a response, and it was same for the same for the two guys that presumably were two days apart. Anyway, we can get to that kind of moral conflict later. But, um, but the answer sort of came across the same. She kept saying things like, um, I've never felt like this with anyone before, um, the way I feel with him is just so different and, and so on and so forth. And there was, it struck me that she said almost nothing, and I, I was paying attention, trying to look for it, said almost nothing specific about either of the men as a person. There was nothing specific about their character or who they were or what they were like. It was all about how they made her feel. I thought, that's interesting. I think that's the modern trend when it comes to God. That God is significant because he makes me feel a certain way. That is a view of God that will not survive the trial of suffering. Because suffering does not feel very good by definition. And if you believe that what makes God worthy of my worship is how he makes me feel, then when it comes to suffering, there will be nothing left to make it through. What God says in the book of Job is what makes him valuable is who he is in and of himself that He is vast beyond measure, that He is the creator of all things and sustainer of all things, that He is merciful and compassionate and good. And He is these things whether we feel it or not. And if this is not your vision of God, suffering is going to expose it in a profound way. And so on this, I would urge you to get a vision of the glory of God that is is biblical and right-sized. And one author has said one of the ways to do this is to try and read specifically about the attributes of God and the ways that He is not at all like us. Read about His infinitude. None of, no one in this room knows what it's like to have never had a beginning, and yet God does. He is not like us. No one knows what it's like to want something to happen in the complete and total sense and to know that you have every ability to do it. God is all-powerful. None of us know what it's like to know everything all at once and yet God does. To read on these things is to remind us that God is other than us. He is greater beyond us. He's worth fearing and being struck with awe by and thereby He's worth trusting even in the difficulty of suffering. I think that's the first point from this section of Job. And the second one would be this. Try to move away from your phone and towards nature. Now I don't say that because I'm a bushwalks person. Not to hate on bushwalks, I mean they're great and all that. In fact that's kind of the point of this section. But it's interesting, I was was reflecting on this. When you you are asked anything when it comes to mental health, if you go to your GP, whatever it is, one of the first questions you'll be asked is, how's your diet and exercise? And that's, that's interesting to me because I think that that gets to, or is asking questions about, how do we relate to the natural world around us? When you're in a, in a city, in a human-made environment, surrounded by technology that obeys your women's command, you can get very much caught in the abstract, and you can forget that you're a tiny being on the frozen surface of a fireball. And yet, when you get out into nature, you are reminded of your smallness. God asked Job 77 questions and almost every one of them is about the natural world. And he's saying, Job, just think, just look around you for a second. Think how small you are and think how large I must be to rule over what you see. There is something good and and refreshing to the soul to be in the natural world. There is something claustrophobic and anxiety producing about city life, and about living with technology that obeys our women's command and subtly teaches us that we are masters of the universe when we are absolutely not. We're called to do this. And the last one is this, to give voice to clear truth. The reason that we sing here at City Light is not because we're musically inclined, but because there are some truths that need to be sung rather than just spoken. And the songs that focus on the truth and the attributes of God are worthy of singing out. And it does good to the soul to give voice to these truths and to do it again and again. And so to finish, I'm going to read from Psalm 115, which is one of these poems that gives voice to the greatness of God. I want you to reflect on this, and after that we're going to stop and think and I'm going to have a time where we can give voice to, the, to uh, these truths. Psalm 115, 1-13 to says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. The author who wrote that had seen nothing of Jesus. How much more for those who follow Christ can we say that those who fear the Lord will be blessed? That God did not leave us in our sins or give us what our sins deserve, but instead sent Jesus to die on our behalf. If that is not enough to say that God is worthy of fear and of trust then what could be? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the testimony of the gospel, that you are both good and mighty, that you are both powerful and merciful, that in suffering we find no comfort in trying to work out the why over and over and over, and yet there is comfort in knowing that on the throne of the universe there is a good and powerful God one who did not give us what our sins deserve, but instead gave us your only Son, that Jesus' blood might be spilled on our behalf, that we might find peace and hope and new life in you. And Father, we pray that this would be our comfort and our joy and our hope in the midst of suffering. And we pray all of these things for the glory of your name. Amen.